This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Reckless Eric, he had a huge hit with The whole wide world, I search the whole wide world till I find a... Should have had the cut there, uh, it would have um, obviated the need for me to wail over the radio. Pardon me, I should have warned to lock the children away. Um, yeah, Reckless Eric, had a great chat with him, he's coming to New Zealand very shortly. You can go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage to find out where and if you wanted to buy tickets as well. But he's a great chat. I've got to say there's a bit of rambling, but I enjoyed the rambling more than the solid information about, you know, how did you write this song and all that sort of stuff. He's a great chat. Very happy in his own skin, may I say. It's a different interview. I like it the way it is, so not even a withering apology. He's later this hour. Oh, and Grant Smithies is back. We're doing another album from the class of 1970s. Eight. <laughs> Forgot what year it was. Uh, Linton Quasi Johnson's Dread Beaten Blood, a grim, very English affair. Resistance and protest. It's a beautiful thing. His first album, he would go on to do better. The amazing Dennis Bovell. As I mentioned earlier in the hour. Okay, next up, be listening if you'd like to win a great book for kids. Uh, it's, I think, for about, you know, nine years to 13 or something like that. It's smart. It's about New Zealand's natural history, geology, even astronomy, um, trees, birds, all that sort of stuff. It's really breezy and eloquent and doesn't dumb anything down. So I thought I'd throw out a lasso and reel in... The author, Simon Pollard, who's a tremendous science communicator. He'll be up next and be listening for your chance to win yourself a copy to give to someone who would enjoy it. Books are still a thing, especially when it comes to this sort of thing, I think, anyway. And a special hello if you've downloaded the podcast. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. A short excursion this week into Enviro News matters because a neat book's come out. I don't mind saying so. It's for kids. I don't really know what age is ideal, but I suspect the author does. It's called Why Is That Lake So Blue? A Children's Guide to New Zealand's Natural World. I think it's breezy eloquent and doesn't talk down and kind of authoritative so that's nothing to do with the marketing wig of the pushers because i thought it worthy i'd grab you simon pollard hello hello all right and put that on the endorsements oh absolutely yes <laughs> i'm starting to make jk rowling look uh, like a bit of a failure okay <laughs> yes. okay hey simon just we'll answer the first question yes. who's, who's it for it's really sort of 9 to 12, 9 to 13-year-olds. That was what was pitched to me. And I can get into a zone of writing for that age group. And I sort of, I mean, my wife says it's a sort of the 10-year-old coming out that never really left. Yeah. But it is very accessible to all age groups. That's the comments I've had from adults looking through it. And if you think about reading age of newspapers, is around about 12. So it was easy to write, keeping that age group in mind, but not, talking down to them and I, I think having done a lot of work as a science communicator across all ages kids are very good at understanding complex things you know you don't have to 
dumb it down. When I was growing up, it was the worst thing. You'd get a kid's book when you were like, you could be six, and yeah. you'd go, oh, this is for kids. Yeah. If it yeah. was talking down to you. I know, I know, it's quite funny. So I think that worked very well. And the, the other that I think has worked so well with the book was it's posed as eight questions. So eight chapters, eight questions. And if you take a chapter like, why are these islands shaky? And you're looking at, at all of the, the sort of geology of New Zealand, and you've got twelve or 1,300 words to write that, then that in itself could be a twenty or 30 or 40,000-page book for kids. So it was trying to get in each chapter the essence of what you know, makes our place magic. It was a real task because you go, oh, I could carry on for pages, but no, 1,300 words on coastlines, the sea, and islands. Yeah. Um, and then another 1,000 words with pop-up stories, whether it was about sub-Antarctic islands or um, what causes earthquakes, how do we measure earthquakes or what do seismologists do and things like that. So I think the formula that came from Tapapa Press has worked very well and I must say I wrote the words and some of them turned out okay but the layout and image selection by Tapapa Press really makes the packet. I wasn't involved in that at all, that, that was their job. Okay. You're uh, giving the impression it's about geology but it's about our natural no, history no, yeah, entirely. Absolutely one part of it, and it's geology, geography, biodiversity and biology of New Zealand as we know it and the continent it sits on, which a lot of people don't know, that's half the size of Australia. Mm. And, and it's just submerged, and it doesn't mean it's not a continent, it's just 94% of it is submerged. And, you know, the two big, biggest land masses are New Zealand and New Caledonia. Yeah. Um, whenever I write like this, I need a starting point. I need something that I go... That's unbelievable. And for me it was when all the continents, you know, Gondwana, all the continents were scrunched up and so South America and Africa and India and what became Australia and Antarctica and, and actually what became New Zealand, which was on the east coast of Australia, there were subtropical rainforests in Antarctica. And, I mean, you know, you grow up with this impression of Antarctica. And that to me was just, yeah, that's so unexpected. And then what that led to was scientists have been able to extract DNA from museum specimens and what they found is that the closest relative of the kiwi is the extinct elephant bird that lives in Madagascar and they shared a flying ancestor that would have lived in those subtropical forests in Antarctica 50 or 100 million years ago and that the kiwi flew the ancestor of the kiwis that live here would have flown here. The other thing that comes up with this is they go the Kiwi is more closely related to the cassowary and the emu that lives in Australia and New Guinea than it is to the moa. Again, we you know grew up in New Zealand going kiwi and moa related, and the kiwis are smaller. And and you know when this continent of Zealandia drifted away, then all these animals it was moa's ark. And now it's you know one thing I read it's, it's describing the fauna and flora of New Zealand as being a bit like things sticking to flypaper. So so lots of things were going on, and some things stuck. What it is. Too. And I've always, you know, there's, there's a lovely saying, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, evolution's a lot clever than you. Yeah. And, and it's also that I always find understanding natural history and understanding the natural world, there are always things beyond your imagination. Yeah. Um, I think a lovely thing to have better known in a book like this, especially for kids, quoting from the book, if you live in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you are so lucky. You live in a wild and wonderful place. We are very, very weird. We're not just rah-rahing ourselves up. It's gold medal every day as far oh. as biodiversity goes oh, and weirdness. 
I remember writing something on, on ethnobotany in, um, in New Zealand. It was for an adult. It was for a magazine in the UK. And I started it by saying, when people first set foot on New Zealand about 850 years ago, we were the last discovered large landmass in the world yeah. because of our isolation. And to put that in perspective of what was happening in other parts of the world... You know, Westminster Abbey was two or three hundred years old and undergoing major renovations. And here's here's a country about the same size as the UK, mm. and no humans had ever set foot on it. I, no, I no. find that remarkable. The Anglo-Saxon system had gone. King John had already oh. buggered things up and had to oh. sign something at Runnymede. We were halfway to democracy with Magna Carta. <laughs> no, isn't it extraordinary? And when I say we, I mean England. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you think across the ditch in Australia, people have been living there for 50,000 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, admittedly, there were a lot more stepping stones from the rest of the world to Australia than, than New Zealand had. We were just here. Yeah. And the people that came here, of course, they were very, very skilled sailors, and they'd been popping around. The Pacific Ocean is a pretty big place, and they'd been popping around all over the place before they came to New Zealand. Yeah, still, um, it's because of the recent human colonisation, uh, we can see a lot of the shadows left from that time. It's, it's massively changed, and a lot yes. of extinctions. And uh, some good stories, like about an animal that tell a bigger story. Yes, I spent, I guess it was sort of about 15 to 18 months on this book, and it wasn't eight hours a day, you know, seven days a week. It was, I'd say, part-time, but I was always thinking about it. And for me, in the way I work, is I did a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of talking to people, and I would come across something. And, I mean, as I say, you know, the 10-year-old pops up and goes, that's a fantastic story. Kids will love that. And my experience of being a spider biologist and telling kids spider stories, kids do like the violence of it all. Oh, they don't yes. really want to hear about butterflies sucking up nectar. No. Um, and one of the most remarkable stories I came across, and I just <laughs> just laughed to myself, was it's also that thing of you, you look at something that, that looks fantastic, like the Waitomo Caves full of glowworms, and you go, oh, that's a marvellous sight, and it reminds me of the night sky, and it reminds me of the Milky Way. And then when you burrow down, you find out these things about these animals that, that are quite extraordinary. And for me, it was, you know, glowworms glow, they glow to attract flying insects that get tricked into thinking they're flying towards light, but they're in fact flying towards their doom because the glowworm is effectively a maggot in a slimy sleeping bag, silk lines hanging down, and as I say, the flying insects attracted to the blue glow and gets trapped and eaten by this maggot that turns into a fungus gnat of flying insects. And if the density in the caves increases, then the glowworms are forced to being closer together and they're very, very territorial, the glowworm larvae. So neighbours will fight each other. And when they fight each other, they glow even brighter. And sometimes one neighbour will actually eat the other neighbour. So they'll, they'll become a cannibal and they tend to spit the glowing bit out. And that falls to the cave floor and still glows for a while. <laughs> it really is a very strange story. And I think in the book I said something along the lines that it's the remains of a maggot with a dim future. Uh, I think that sums up things going wrong, you know, having a bad maggot day. Yeah, and it even goes into astronomy a little bit, which is great. Some uh, luminaries, uh, New Zealanders from that area as oh, well. So great personal stories. Absolutely, and it was very easy to pepper it with famous New Zealanders that, that have made a huge contribution. And, I mean, you know, you, you've... Um, yeah, I mean, just extraordinary people, and and I want yeah those and the, it and it's not oh I need to go and find some famous New Zealanders to put in the book. It's just like that they pop up yeah. and say, well we've got to yeah. put this person, this person. Well, I've got a grievance about one you didn't put in. Oh. Richard Henry. 
Richard Henry, now what did he do? Oh, he was the first conservationist in the world. He dunked all the kakapo over to um, Resolution Island and then it all went to hell in a handbasket. Oh, really? Well, I didn't know that. Oh, that's I, well, all right. One of the things I think, well, I, and I said this to, to somebody who knows a lot more about conservation than I do, I said, we know the history of New Zealand and we know the extinctions and we know the main thing that Captain Cook did was will say this would be a good place for people from England to live in. And so we had again this huge impact on the land and flora and fauna. But one of the saving graces, I think, for New Zealand it was that we had about we have about 600 offshore islands. Yep. And so a lot of that endemic flora and fauna survived because people and the mammals and other pests that they had brought out with them didn't get onto these islands. And, yep. I, and I also think now, in 2018, everybody in New Zealand is aware of conservation and everybody supports it, you know, predator-proof areas, making offshore islands predator-free. We're never going to get back to the way it was before people were here, but what we have got here, we can make a real effort to make sure they survive into the future. Yeah, and no matter which form of government is in, neither of them see any sense in chopping down the last of the lowland forest we have. Either. Oh, no, no, yeah. no. It wasn't that long ago, they did. Um, I know, absolutely extraordinary you, what people did. You've got, um, you have got a picture of Don Merton there, which is absolutely. wonderful, holding Richard Henry the Kakapo, so absolutely. I have really no right to complain about anything. <laughs> um, a big question about this book, the currency of the book, I think it's fair to say, it's thus wonderful things, but the currency is diminished because of online stuff. Are kids going to um, read it? One of the interesting things, I've, I've had a couple of very nice reviews of the book, and one of the reviewers said that you can't get a package like this online. No. So if you've got a book that in 112 pages is covering the history of, of Zealandia and New Zealand and what lives here and, you know, all the geology and all the geography, then you just can't get that as a package. And I think kids still like dipping into books. I know I was recently at um, at a school, you know, during the lunchtime I was taken through the library and it's full of kids reading books. And yes, online is fantastic. I, I want to know what's the correct spelling of this or should I say they were breeding pairs or, or whatever. I can get that information. But again, it's had it in a form that, that by reading the chapters or reading the book, you get a sense of where you live in a different way that you would from just reading online, I think. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's the message I've tried to get across, the, the whole magic of the place. And with that magic, of course, comes, you know, uh, earthquakes, volcanoes, extreme weather, landslides. Um, all of this stuff is part of what makes New Zealand special. And, and that's part of why it's a wild and wonderful place. Yeah, and it is specially made for kids, and so much of the internet isn't, and it's well, hard that's to find. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean it's lovely to think of places like um, organisations like the uh, Department of Conservation and Forest and Bird having special activities for kids, and kids can be involved. And I, I think you know, living in Christchurch post earthquake, where things like cleaning up the Avon River and making. Um, making the river much more a part of the new city. And so one of my um, favourite stories about this was the Eel Hotels. Mm. They cleaned up the river. They took, oh, thousands of tonnes of silk because you all had liquefaction issues with the river. They narrowed parts of it to increase the flow rate. And when they built these new terraces that go down to the water's edge, they put in pipes of different diameters and had these spaces under the terrace that is, of course, filled with water. And so eels live there. 
just by the Bridge of Remembrance in Christchurch, slightly to the right of the Bridge of Remembrance, if you go down to the terrace there and tap your feet, eels appear, and I think a lot of people feed them. And there are about 30 or 40 eels living under the um, under terraces. So that's a fantastic thing, because, again, you know, longfin deal, biggest fish in New Zealand, what a lifestyle. Yeah. To live 20 or 30 years in fresh water and then travel about three times the length of New Zealand to somewhere out by Tonga, have sex and die. And then your babies float back to New Zealand and then they grow into small eels and bigger eels and do what their folks did. Yeah, it's one of those counterintuitive observations. If you see one of those huge big eels, you think, oh, it must be old. It's had so many kids. It's, you know, doesn't matter. They're all virgins. Yeah, well, that's right. And I mean, can you imagine humans going, oh, well, let's take a Pacific holiday. We'll have sex and die. It just wouldn't sell that well. No, at the age of 104. <laughs> For the first time, I might go on a date. <laughs> that's very funny. It's a very funny well, there idea. There you go. That's that's New Zealand for you. We're the weirdest spot in the world by some margin, I think. I think so. And I wouldn't live anywhere else. I've travelled enormously um, over the years, and I and I always think New Zealand's a wonderful place. And even with all the earthquakes, I wouldn't live anywhere else in Christchurch. I think, you know, the access to Banks Peninsula, the access to the mountains, it's just a great place to be. All right. Why is that lake so blue? Children's Guide to New Zealand's Natural World. We've been speaking with Simon Pollard and we have a copy on offer. If this sounds like a thing for someone that you know, give us a bell. 0800-844-747. It's comprehensive. I think it's scientifically rigorous. doesn't talk down to kids and a good thing. Uh, so go on you, Simon, and thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much, Graham. That was great. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. We've been able to do a few things from the era of the late 70s and the absence of Grant Smithy's reviewing album, Turning 40. Here's one, Reckless Eric, and the hugely famous song. We'll recognise it, the whole wide world. And Rex Eric will be with us after this tune. When I was a young boy, my mama said to me, there's only one girl in the world for you And she probably lives in Tahiti I call the whole wide world I call the whole wide world Just a point of Or maybe she's in the Bahamas Where the Caribbean sea is blue Tropical moonlit night Because nobody's told about you
Hi, Eric. Yeah. It's Graham Hill, Radio Live. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm fine. Of course it's this week. Yes, I've got it, yeah. Uh, sorry, I was just looking at the, a disturbing development here. Um, the deer are getting closer to the house. Good God, no. call 911. Yeah, I know. The, the deer are taking over. It's it's this kind of thing, you know, they think that the threat is like the fucking Russians or the Chinese. It's not any of that. It's not even Donald Trump. It's deer. Tell the Washington Post they're on the wrong track. Yes. Oh, I'll get on to the as possible. They just come out stage dive. You have deer in Australia? We're in New Zealand, but yeah. Oh, that's a terrible faux pas, isn't it? No. We honestly don't care. I don't know. Are Australians still belligerently Australian? They were when they went there before. It was like I got off the plane and like I've been, you know, I've just got through the customs and I've got some some promoter going, what do you think of Australian bands? You know, we've got our own band here. They're really oh, right. good. Have you heard any of them? <laughs> what do you think of Australian? <laughs> I was like, oh, God. Oh. We do that too. We ask people if they've heard of Australian bands as well. Have you heard of the Saints? Of course I have. Love the Saints. All right. Oh, this is going well so far, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> well, shall we? Shall we get on to something about you? You like? Yeah. I mean, it might not be interesting, but I'll give it. <laughs> we'll be the judge of that. We'll just give it a go. All right. You know, coming to New Zealand, like, because I've only been once, and I, I think I did one show. So I can't remember. It was in Auckland, so it was a very brief and very quick experience and it was 38 years ago you know it's like that kind of thing why you're kind of thinking well i do i can vaguely remember it and i think it's all right and why haven't they asked me back and then you're thinking i really should get in touch with someone and go back but it's like when you haven't found somebody for ages like your best friend or something and then it gets to being a year yeah. And someone said, have you heard from... Oh, God, no, I haven't. No, I haven't heard from... Um, well, in this case, it got to 38 years. Yeah. I go to gigs now with bands that reform from uh, the late 70s or 80s or something, and... Oh, no, I envy them. I envy them. They reform. They stage comebacks and everything. Like, a, yeah. uh, you know, I used to think that. But then I see these bands. I mean, Seth Little Fingers reformed, you know, Jake Barnes. And he said, is there any chance that we could open for you? Huh? You know, they were just sort of testing the water. And I'm sort of, yeah, I suppose. And now they're playing, like, these huge places. And I'm yeah. thinking, I wish I could reform. And then you you run into people that you haven't seen in a long time. You would have been better off phoning them because there's that bit in your brain, the honest, the honest bit in your brain goes, oh, geez, I didn't realise you were going to get that fat and old. I know. We didn't say this in polite society. No, of course not. No, but I mean, I see people and like they've got the remains of their hair is done in a sort of cockatoo kind of dyed type job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're sort of, they're wearing skin-tight jeans, which... Let's face it, look, I'm 64 and I've kept my figure quite well, but, I mean, I'm not going to wear skin-tight jeans at my age. But, you know, it's not a good look. And they look like that singer from The Cure bloke, you know. If, yeah. if anyone's stuck for what to do about to go to a fancy dress party, they just throw on a black wig, some big makeup, and a red pullover and go as Robert Smith from The Cure, you know. 
these people look like that, but vastly fatter and larger, they balloon. And then they say to me, they say, Eric, you haven't changed a bit. Ah, neither have you. Like that, being polite. You've described me, basically. Cockatoo hair, tight jeans, just ridiculous. God. Sorry. No, I've beaten you to it. I got rid of all the mirrors in the house. It's just too frightening. Really? Well, it's a kind of, it's a thing that, like, you can go through life being James Bond. <laughs> and then I'm sort of walking down the street and I say, who's that tubby middle-aged guy? Oh, yeah. damn, it's yeah. me. You see yourself in, in yeah. the shop front, don't you, in the shop window reflection. Yeah, that's it. Jesus and then there's that thing where people can only see themselves from the front, but if they could see the side view, yeah. they would rethink their look. I think we all would. People go... You've got grey hair, you know. And you're, well, what did you expect? You know, I've been. I'm not Walt Disney. I've been in a deep freezer. No. Whole wide world, man. That song must have served you so well. When you have a look at the amount of people that have covered it. I know it's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I still think the original is the best because it's far enough from home that I won't have to live with having said that. But you'll never be as good as you want it to be. No. I think that's, for most people, it's the same. It's very rare that anyone's completely satisfied with what they do and goes, God, that's fabulous. Mm, I wish I could kiss myself. Oh, some people do that. And they should be put down immediately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you remember writing it? I do. I started writing it on a park bench. I was not hiding from a girl that I liked. Well, I didn't. I did like her, but I didn't like her enough. And I was trying to distance myself, you know, being young and being a bit of a cad, thinking that there was probably other girls, other possibilities, and I was 19 years old. And I went up for a walk by the university, and this was in a town that I used to live in called Hull. I was an art student there. I was started writing this song because, like, we had this band, but we used to do Bo Diddley songs and real badly. And I thought it would be better if we did our own songs really badly in the end. So I was trying to write some, but Whole Wide World was really the first one that I wrote that was any good at all. I wrote it sitting on a park bench up by the university. And when I got home, like, she was sitting on the doorstep. She said, oh, you're back, are you? Where have you been? I said, oh, I'm, I, yeah, I'm going like... <laughs> so I actually split up with a girl while I was writing it. <laughs> also, if you want, if you think about it, it might be one of the highest return per chord tunes. Yeah. It's two chords. Two chords, yeah. No one would play it because they said it was only two chords and, like, songs had to have three chords. Yes, I suppose it served me well, really, and I proved myself right in the end. Or did I prove them wrong? How many covers of Whole Wide World have been done? I don't know. I don't know. Marilyn Manson did it. Paul Westerberg used to play it every night. The Proclaimers, Scottish band. Uh, uh, the Monkeys, Mental as Anything. Cage the Elephant, that's the latest one. That was a hit. Well, that band's huge. I kind of never heard of them. Have you ever watched the television or a movie and heard that piece of music come on uh, at, at any stage, or do you always know when someone's going to has used it? Yeah, I, I knew. I knew it was going to come on. Oh, you yeah. know, yeah. 
Oh, oh, it was in the McDonald's advert in Canada, which was disgraceful in a way, but, you know, I'd say think of it as arts funding. And uh, it was in Stranger Than Fiction, that film, uh, with um, Will Ferrell, a film called Me Without You. It was in a film one called Radio On. It was in a film called That Summer. It's been in loads of films. But I never get to meet any of the people, right? I mean, it's supposedly it's going to be in a film with Seth Rogen in it. I'd love to meet him, you know, if I might get on with him, he might be OK. But I did a gig once with Cheap Trick, hoping for them in London, and, like, they seemed standoffish. And I thought, oh, dear, you know. And um, then, like, years later, like, a couple of years ago, I was playing in Nashville, and I met this guy afterwards, and he was going, I said, oh, God, I'm such a fan. Oh, I mean, I'm going, what do you do? And he said, I play the bass. I said, oh, I said, that's great. And uh, do you have a band and everything that you play with? And he said, yeah, yeah, we, we do quite well with the gigs. We're, we're called Cheap Trick. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I did a gig with you once in London in 1979. And you were very weird. I mean, you never seemed to want to speak to me. And he said, oh, God, yeah, we were in awe. <laughs> All these years, they said, he said, we were in awe of you. Because oh they were God. all fans. Isn't that nice? Okay. I'm looking at the artwork, the cover for your record, and just two questions. You've got the Rickenbacker in the freaking leopard spot suit. What the hell happened to that suit? You know, my daughter found it in the loft of her mother's house. I used to live in France. I used to go in this bar, a local bar, and the guy used to put shows on there, and like he was terribly proud that I lived there. I mean, most people didn't give a damn. And he had my first album on the wall kind of thing, or on the shelf of the bar. I was in there with my daughter one day. My daughter is like 34 and has three kids. And she was looking at the photo and she said to me, I still wear that shirt sometimes. And I was like, what? And she she had the shirt, which had a, it was kind of black with all these insects all over it. Uh-huh. And then we found the suit in our mother's attic. The suit was tiny. I mean, it was absolutely tiny. I was skeletal in those days. It's amazing how thin everybody was. Isn't it? You know, you could get a sort of 14-year-old into it, possibly. And uh, I remember not wearing it because I thought it was too big. It's so strange. Have you still got that Rickenbacker? No. Okay, well, move on. I'll tell you what, uh, it was a piece of junk. I bought it in South Wales, and I bought it very cheaply, and one day I found out lot years later that Cyril Jordan from the Flaming Groovies has had exactly the same Rickenbacker, the same year, same kind of model and all that, stolen in South Wales shortly before I bought mine very cheaply. Aha! It was stolen off me eventually, but it was a piece of shit. I mean, if you move your hand at all... It went out of tune. You looked at it, it went out of tune. Your fingers on the frets, it went out of tune. There was nothing to be done with it. Okay. (laughs) 
Kilburn and the High Roads was the band that Ian Jury formed. That's often cited as a, a formative time for you when you saw them and you were good mates with Ian Jury throughout. Um, yeah, I was, yes. And um, they were fantastic. There was nothing like Kilburn and the High Roads. It was not unstructured and you, you couldn't understand what was holding it together. Ian played the drums for me. Like, I think he did because his girlfriend played the bass for me and she used to hop over to my house to do the bass playing. And we, I think Ian thought we were having an affair, so he came along one day. So he was slightly challenging. He said, oh, play me some of these tunes you've been working on. And we went, OK. <laughs> Looking back at it, I can see it all. He was kind of, right, OK. Uh, he said... You need a drummer. I mean, like, that could be me. You know, I always wanted to play drums, but it's stupid when only half your body works. But, uh, you know, uh, he was great, actually. I mean, Ian was uh, fantastic rhythms, fantastic sense, timing and everything. But polio, you know, so, I mean, he had one arm that worked and one leg that worked, really. So the hi-hat was clamped shut. The bass drum was very, very strong, and the snare was just this haphazard thing where he'd pull his hand up and kind of drop it onto the drum. The right hand on the hi-hat was this ridiculous time-creeping thing with this bass drum that would punctuate a very exciting drummer. Minimal. Best type. Yeah, he never forgave me. He said I gave him the sack. I was saying, Ian, you had a gold record. You had a number one record. And, like, everyone's looking past me to get a look at the drummer, you know. I mean, like, it wasn't, it was untenable. <laughs> and he said, oh, you sacked me. I'll never forgive you for that. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I ever saw him, I mean, he was on his deathbed. And he looks at me, he says, yeah. and he, he was laughing. He said, you sacked me, you... <laughs> you know, he used to wind me up with it. I mean, I think I took the bait every time. Like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I, I didn't know it meant so much to you. I mean, you were the best. You were the best. There was no one who was ever as good as I think he just liked making me squirm. Bless him. What jobs have you done outside of making music? Uh, I, I was a sound engineer. No, that doesn't no. count, no. was a very good sound engineer. No, it doesn't count. Um, Something ordinary jobs. Um, I was a quality control inspector in a lemonade factory. Oh, yes. Ten weeks. Now we're talking. That's the longest. That's the longest I've had a real job. But, you know, I used to think, yeah, yeah, well, I'm in a band. It's not like being these suckers with their, yeah, their real job and all that. And I'm thinking, yeah, OK, yeah, this is much better. And then it's, it's like five o'clock in the morning and you're sitting in the back of a, an unheated van feeling quite ill and there's not even any time to go and eat breakfast because you got to get to the ferry terminal and you know and I'm thinking yeah, not like all those other suckers <laughs> I worked myself into the floor doing music you know I mean like, I think I was just crazier than other people for it I would drive vast distances across Europe on the promise of a few hundred dollars cash or whatever 
that was my life for years and years. I just was so hand-to-mouth. I lived in an unheated, uninsulated ex-dance hall in the, in the French countryside, which had no hot water. It had dangerous electricity. And I lived there for years with no support from the music industry, no manager, no agent, no record label, because I didn't like them. You talked about record labels. Stiff Records. Over here in New Zealand, we get an album. Oh, Stiff, there's the label. And then you get another record that you quite like. Oh, there's Stiff, there's the label. This must be a good outfit. But we had no idea what the label really was. Tell us about Stiff Records. What were they like? It was 1976. It was utterly fantastic. They were making these cheap records. They were recording A and B side in a in an eight hour session and mix it, and then it will be out two weeks later. You know, you've got the Pink Fairies who were an old psychedelic band, and and you had Nick Love, of course, and then there was the Elvis Costello thing. And like, you know, he was just some weirdo with spectacles. He wasn't an obvious contender for anything. I mean, I don't think anyone would have predicted what happened with him. Yeah. And there was me, and Mick Lowe said famously, if Eric had gone to another label, wouldn't have got past the rubber plants. That's about the strength of it. They all had rubber plants, didn't they? What a thing. I know, and they'd say, yeah, we've got the caring committee artists and they, they're doing the best they can for everything and, like, you know, the world and all the rest of it. And they would still give you a cup of coffee in a styrofoam cup. Jake... Riviera, who started it, left with Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe, and the label was left to Dave Robinson, who was, I mean, he'd done a few things, but to me, I don't think he had the vision that Jake had. Jake didn't give a damn if he upset people, offended people, or shocked people. He figured that that's what you needed to do, and that would be actually be fun. The vision went out of it, so much so that in the end, Stiff Records was the label that bought you Dave Stewart and Barbara Gascoigne doing, you know, It's My Party, and I'll cry if I want. I mean, who gives a flying, you know? Why? Why would you do that when you have been this label? I mean, you listen to those, the first year of records from that label, they jump off the record player. They have this sound and this vibe. There was nothing like this. It was an independent label. It was probably the first one that made any kind of a dent. You're in New York now. I live in upstate New York. I feel that I've understood things about music and the playing of music like rock and roll or pop music or rhythm and blues or whatever it is an understanding I could have never have got from being living in England anywhere mm. not the same wow I haven't become Americanized I mean I'm not the Eagles or something reckless Eric is on the line with us <laughs> we look forward to seeing you uh, here in Australia so what's the gig? Is it just you solo? Well, I never think of it as just me solo. You oh, know, I mean, okay. me, me on my own is actually better than me with a band. I mean, like, if I do it with a band, I always feel like 
I know some stuff here. I need mind readers, not musicians. It's like being surrounded by actors. I'm in free fall and they're all reading off the script. And my solo shows are quite something usually. I hope they can be quite something there. Um, Yeah, I mean, I play with musicians that I like from time to time. I'm doing a gig this weekend and I've got a trumpet player called Archie Babato. He's great. I don't know, I don't know what he thinks I'm some sort of idiot sap on to something. Well, we, well, we'll have a good timeline together anyway. So he's coming to play with me at a show this weekend and then after that I'm going to get ready to come to Australia, New Zealand. New Zealand first. Um, I really quite like this construction time and demolition thing. Forget who you are. That uh, really enamoured me. Tell us about it before we play it. The first line of it is everything is going to be groovy. And then it kind of isn't. Everything is going to be groovy. Like some happy, clappy iPhone movie. That you might spread around the internet. Lest you forget, forget. I love that song. I love doing it live. I mean, sometimes it takes 10 minutes. How's the deer problem? The deer problem? Yeah. There's no deer on that record. No, you had when deer. Was... They were coming in the lounge or something when you oh, picked up the phone. We don't have you don't have No, no, no. There was just deer around the door. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. they're trying to get in now. Okay, but that's yeah. under control. You happy? I'm happy, yes, yes. I suppose you've got... No, what you don't have... They have the kangaroos. You lot have something else. Is it koalas? Yeah. The national animal. That's the dodo. Oh, right. They're extinct, aren't they, though? Yeah. Split ends, too. You've got split ends as well. A record company guy explains me in great detail while he drank a bottle of some kind of rum. He was wobbling backwards and forwards. He said, we're we're a New Zealand band. Australia is our home, but we're a New Zealand band. I think it was that, but then it changed to, New Zealand is our home, but we're an Australian band. But they're not, are they? They're New Zealand. (laughs) Reckless Eric, it's been a hell of a lot of fun. Thanks for talking with us, and we look forward to seeing you in New Zealand. Right, I'll see you later. Okay, good on you, mate. Bye-bye. Bye.
Hope you enjoyed Reckless Eric. Uh, we continue on a bit of a musical beat, but more information than music. You get a fair sample, though, of lovely album, the debut by Linton Quasi Johnson. It's called Dread Beat and Blood. It didn't come out as Linton Quasi Johnson um, originally. It was, what is it, Poets in the Roots. Um, the music is by Dennis Bovell, and he would stick with Dennis Bovell for the rest of his career, and a good choice as well. Just beautiful stuff. So, Grant Smithies is back. Round of applause, trumpets. Uh, back for the long haul. Hopefully, albums from the class of 1978. Strip Eaton Blood turns 40. We'll get into that straight after news sport. It's 11 o'clock.